For what do I have if I don't have you, Jesus? What in this life could mean anymore? You are my rock. You are my glory. Hi and welcome to The Rock Podcast. In today's teaching, Dr. Joe Holden speaks on the inerrancy of Scripture, a message that is much needed in the church today. Well, it is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Joe to you. Um, As most of you have heard, he is the president and co-founder of Veritas uh, Evangelical Seminary. Uh, down in Los Angeles, but he also teaches at the Calvary Chapel Bible College, and that's why many of our students uh, know of him and uh, he of them. And um, let me tell you, I first heard him speak at a pastor's conference, uh, Calvary Chapel National Pastor's Conference. He was one of the keynote guys. He's a real smart guy. He's got his PhD. But even more than that, he's got this passionate gift to strengthen the church when it comes to sound doctrine, especially in the age that we live, the last days, when every uh, wind of doctrine comes blowing in and the church just kind of runs after all of these different theological trends. Now, he opened up at the conference and had us all just sitting on the edge of uh, our chairs listening. He quoted from Acts chapter 20, where Paul the Apostle says farewell to the Ephesian pastors. And he says, watch out, men, because there will be men from your own group who will rise up among you and introduce destructive heresies, false teachings, to divide and and cause much destruction and division among the church. And he says, I've warned you day and night with tears that these things are going to happen. And we live in a day when these things are happening all around us. So no better timing. Uh, This guy prepared to be schooled because this guy's a professor. All right. But he's got a heart that we be immovable with the inerrancy of the scriptures. He's going to tell you what that means. Now, welcome, Dr. Joe. Wow. Yeah. Well, please stay seated. No standing ovations are necessary for me. Um, Well, I just look out here and I see so many familiar faces. Do you know that this church has sent more people to get educated at the Bible college than just about any other mega church out there? I see them all. Dylan and Casey was here the first service, and Allie and Nate and uh, Cassandra was here. I don't know if Cassandra's still here, but um, it, it's just amazing. You're in good hands with Pastor Ross. Keep, keep teaching the word. Well, this morning, uh, before I start, I'd like to give you greetings from Dr. Norman Geisler. He uh, says hello. He's one of the co-founders of uh, Veritas Evangelical Seminary in Santa Ana, as Pastor Ross described. And And our faculty and staff have been crisscrossing the country, warning and equipping churches about the various changes that are occurring within the evangelical Christian church when it comes to their doctrine of Scripture. And that's my title today. It's the battle for the Bible. 
why some Christian scholars say the Bible contains legend. Okay, believe it or not, we now have Christian professors professing there is legend and myth and apocalyptic elements that don't reflect reality within the scriptures. And I hate to bring this to you, and I don't want to be an alarmist, but I do want to sound the alarm if it's warranted. Um, I hope that all of you leave today both encouraged, equipped, and well-informed about the problems that we're facing within the church today. You see, I wanted to come and talk about some promises of God today. I wanted to talk to you about our great common salvation we have. But today, I found it necessary to talk to you about what's happening within scholarship among professors within the Christian world. And it's not pretty. It's not pretty. In fact, these debates have been raging for the last 10 years, but the last five years have been so challenging because now all the books are being published by these Christian uh, professors of New Testament and so forth. And what's in these books is just alarming. And so we continue to attempt to win the battle for the Bible in this generation by going to the people in the church, such as yourselves, and to pastors, to equip them, to be on guard for them. Because as J. Gresham Mason said, he's one of the founders of Westminster Seminary, he said, as go the seminaries, so go the churches. Okay? In another quote, he said, the seminaries have become nurseries of unbelief today. And that really grieves my heart. Being a president of a seminary, um, I know that uh, the seminary's president's job is to ensure and protect sound doctrine among its faculty. And unfortunately, I've had to let a few faculty members go over the issues that I'm going to be talking about today. But we don't put friendship above orthodoxy. Fraternity and orthodoxy are distinct. Friendship is very important, but the word of God must be our number one priority. Do you remember what God said about his word? He says he exalts it and holds it higher than his name. Okay, that's a great statement the psalmist made. But some people are holding it below their own name. Not just God's name, below their own name. And we need to know about it. Because even if this lecture is not for you, it may be for somebody who comes asking you questions about this issue. So we're not only called to be students of the word, but evangelists, speaking and apologists, defending and so forth. So let's go ahead and get into it and give you an idea of what we're up against today. When we talk about these scholars who have introduced uh, concepts of legend in the scripture, just know there's five reasons why the inerrancy of scripture matters. It matters. Why? Because God spoke the word of God. When he speaks it, he is a God who cannot err, and therefore we call the scriptures inerrant because God doesn't make mistakes. The first reason, the nature of God is at stake with these concepts of scripture that we're facing today. If God cannot err, and they say there's errors in the Bible or legend or things that didn't actually occur in the Bible, but they're written as if they did, we have a problem. The problem goes all the way back to the nature of God. Because if God can err, how many other errors are you going to find in Scripture? How many other utterances from Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, Jesus are of the same ilk? Then what verses can we trust when we open the Word of God? It goes back to the nature of God. Secondly, the authority of Scripture. When we know God spoke the Word of God, 
It carries authority, doesn't it? I mean, if dad says you better be home at six o'clock to eat dinner, right? That carries authority. But when your little sister comes up and says, you better be home in about 20 minutes, you know, that doesn't carry that much authority probably to you. But when we look at the scripture, if God spoke it and it's true, that carries the authority of God and the word of God. Also, what's at stake here is their confidence in the scripture's message and doctrines. You see, we have confidence in what the Bible says because of who spoke it. And because the person who spoke it cannot make a mistake, he cannot lie, he cannot deny himself, he cannot err in any way, we take it as authoritative. Because if there's one error in Scripture, what happens? There could be more. Once you get that foot in the door with errors, there could be more. Then you got to scratch your head and say, well, is this... Is this passage correct? Is this true? Is that true? Then all of a sudden, your confidence in Scripture just goes down the drain. The Bible, fourthly, is a unique book. If it has errors in it, it's no better than any other book that's ever been written. It's on common ground, in other words. There's a Latin phrase that the scholars use to describe this unique book. It was sui generis. Can you guys say that? Sui generis. What is it? Okay, I'm going to give you a pop quiz at the end of this. You guys got to know that, all right? All right, sui generis. It means the Bible is one of a kind and unique. There is no other book like it as inspired scripture. And then, fifthly and finally, why is it important? Why does inerrancy matter? Because it is the essential of essentials. And I say that not because you won't go to heaven if you don't believe it. You certainly will still go to heaven if you trust in the Lord Jesus. You will go to heaven whether your doctrine of inerrancy is off or not because it's all about Jesus, right? It's not about your understanding of a doctrine of inerrancy. But I do call it the essentials of essentials because all those doctrines of salvation, doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of our great redemption, the cross and the resurrection all come from this book. This is the only piece of literature that we have that God has given us that we can call inspired and inerrant and therefore is authoritative in everything it implies, affirms, teaches, and says. In other words, if God speaks, the Bible speaks. And what the Bible says, God says. It's equivalency of truth. It's an essential of the essentials because out of those great pages of the book, come those precious doctrines that you and I cherish so much. Without it, we just have to question, it might not be true. And this is what the problem was with these Christian evangelical scholars. But they departed from Scripture. Notice what 2 Peter says about whether legend is in Scripture. He said, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths, and we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ but we were eyewitness of his majesty. In other words, what? They saw it. In fact, in the Gospel of Luke, Luke says he consulted eyewitnesses to convey the message and the teachings of Christ. And he uses this fantastic Greek word, autoptes. That's where we get our English word autopsy from. And that word conveys the idea that Luke dissected a deceased individual, to find the cause of death of this individual. The same method that a coroner would do that, Luke does it 
with Jesus' teaching. He consulted eyewitnesses. He went and investigated it for himself. He wrote it down accurately and precisely as a good doctor would. Eyewitness is probably the closest and most surest piece of evidence that Peter and the apostles were stating what they saw, what they touched, who they ate with, who they experienced, and gave three and a half years of their life to him. Think about that for a moment. Those three and a half years were life-changing. And if Peter says, we didn't buy into these former fables, we went hook, line, and sinker for Jesus, the real deal. Notice what the psalmist said. The sum of your word is truth. Not part of it, all of it. And Jesus in John 17, 17 says, thy word is truth. He didn't say thy word contains truth, along with other stuff. That's the liberal notion of the scripture. He didn't say the word of God becomes truth as long as you experience it and encounter it. That's neo-orthodoxy of Rudolf Bultmann. It says your word is truth. That is an ontological statement about the nature and essence of the book and the pages itself. It is truth through and through. It doesn't become it. It doesn't just contain it like every other book does, perhaps. It is it through and through. In fact, Jesus said in the same passage, he says, sanctify them by your truth. Your very sanctification depends on the truthfulness of this book here. Jesus didn't mince word. He said what he believed. What did he believe about the Bible? He said the Bible has divine authority. In fact, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, 7, and 10, what is Jesus, that often repeated phrase he uses? It is written. That is the phrase of finality and authority. And he said it is written three times right here in chapter 4 to communicate to the devil that I'm standing on the inerrant, inspired, the final and authoritative word of God for winning this temptation. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. That's how you resist. Okay, over 90 times in the New Testament, that little phrase, it is written, was written down for your admonition and to realize the Bible is the final word. It's the authoritative divine word. Jesus said it was indestructible. That means you can't defeat it. He also said it's infallible. I love that word because the Bible cannot fail in anything it affirms or implies. In fact, I love that word so much. It actually means it doesn't have the potential to fail. There is no potentiality or possibility of this book failing in any way, according to Jesus. John 10.35, the scriptures cannot be broken. Notice, fourthly, ultimate supremacy. And fifthly, Historical reliability. He even quotes in Matthew 12, 40, Jesus quotes that Jonah was in the belly of the great fish. In fact, he even says, just as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish, so also I will be in the heart of the earth for how many days? Three days. Wouldn't that be strange if Jonah was a legend and Jesus said, just as Jonah's the legend, you remember that? So also the truthfulness of me being in the heart of the earth in the grave for three days is true. That doesn't make sense, all right? Believe it or not, these evangelical scholars that we're talking about have said that Jonah is a parabolic fiction. Interestingly, even after Jesus says and confirms in Matthew 12, 40, 
Interesting. In fact, they even go so far, Craig Blomberg in his book, Can We Still Trust the Bible? He says, the story of Jonah is much like Frodo and his companions in The Lord of the Rings. Wow. I got a big chuckle out of that. So we responded. And I'll tell you what they said back in just a moment. Notice, scientific accuracy, Jesus affirmed, in the factual inerrancy of the book, he affirmed. Notice, God guarantees inerrancy because, as Paul said, all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training the man of God for all righteousness, for the equipping of the saints. Now, breathing out, if you breathe out something, you, yourself, if you speak something, it's possible that it can err because you're fallible. But when Jesus breathes something out, or when God breathes something out, he is infallible, he doesn't have the potential to err, and therefore that ensures the inerrancy of Scripture. There is no failing in the words himself. If God cannot err, the Scripture cannot err. This is the logic we follow as believers in the full inerrancy of Scripture. If God cannot err, and the Bible is the word of God, then the Bible cannot err. It's simple, sound logic. To try to avoid the conclusion of this logic, you'd have to take issue with one of the two premises above it. That's just sound logic. If you don't want the following, the Bible cannot err, well, which one do we disagree with or have to repackage? If God cannot err, or in the Bible is the word of God, we'll find out that these modern scholars are actually challenging uh, the second uh, tier here. Okay? Why inerrancy matters? Well, for the fundamental reason, because doctrine often flows out of history recorded in Scripture. For example, what does John 3.12 say? Anybody remember the conversation of Jesus with Nicodemus? Remember, he said, you must be born again. But he gets down to verse 12 and he says, unless you believe me in earthly things, how will you ever believe me in heavenly things? Unless the historical things that you can check out actually pan out to be true, why would you ever believe me about things of the afterlife, about morality, about things you can't put in a Petri dish or a test tube? What are you going to say about those things that aren't physical and material? So in other words, Jesus is saying, if you can't trust him in the things you can check out, such as geography, the names of kings, places, events, coinage, whatever it might be, names, places, official titles, how are you ever going to believe him about things about the afterlife? We can't, is the implied answer. But thank God he inspired the scripture and that these things are true and our precious doctrines, again, flow out of them. Or how about Romans 4.25? It says, Christ was delivered up for our trespasses and he was raised for our justification. Notice the two historical events that anchor the two precious doctrines you and I hold. The two events, he was delivered up for our trespasses, that's going to a historical cross in time and space, on a real Roman cross in Israel outside the city gates. A real death, real blood was shed. You get forgiveness of trespasses if you believe that. Also, the resurrection from the tomb. Second part of Romans 4.25. That's a historical, literal, physical event that occurred. And you get justification. Right standing, just as if you never sinned before God if you believe that. Romans 10.9 and 10. 
But if you take away the historical veracity of the crucifixion and the historical veracity of the resurrection, you get none of those doctrines. We're still stuck in our sins, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. We're men most to be pitied if Christ is not raised from the dead. So the history is the bedrock from which our doctrine flows. You get rid of history, we destroy the foundation of our doctrines. Also, within the church, the inerrancy issue, the belief that the Bible is completely true without error in any form. John Hanna wrote this book some time ago, Inerrancy in the Church, and he shows that full inerrancy was the historic belief of the church from the very beginning. There was never a time in the Orthodox Bible-believing church that inerrancy was challenged as it is today from within the church. Today we have new kids on the block, and every generation brings a new battle for the Bible. You see, Walter Kaiser, Norm Geisler, Harold Lenzel, J.I. Packer, R.C. Sproul, they're in their late 80s and 90s today. Now we need a new generation to fight the battle. Who picked up the mantle from Elijah when he was taken? Elisha. Are you willing to take up the mantle today to defend the faith, to stand firm on Scripture, even in a world where there's swirling voices of religious commentary and political and geopolitical comments? Are you willing to say, yes, I believe the Bible fully, even despite the Twitter the Instagram, the Snapchat, the Facebook, all the social media that's pulling at your coattails to go a certain way for peer acceptance. Because the views that I'm talking about today among these evangelical scholars are views that are being blogged, are views that are on social media, and it's the younger scholar today that is endorsing this and bringing a new generation under their umbrella. I encourage you today to do what John the Baptist did. You know what he did? He was eccentric, admittedly, right? I mean, he had a crazy diet. Eating locust and wild honey, probably organic foods and so forth. But his wardrobe was pretty eccentric too, don't you? Would you admit? He wore camel hair, right? I'm going to ask you today, don't worry about the locust and wild honey. I'm not going to ask you to do that if you don't want. But I want you to wear camel hair. I want you to be camel hair Christians. I want you guys to be uncompromising and hold your convictions without compromise. We need more camel hair preachers. There's one sitting right there, Pastor Ross Reinman. He's a camel hair preacher. Keep up the good work, Pastor. God's good. Yeah. We need staff with wearing camel hair. We need people who are uncompromising. They can stare those religious leaders from Jerusalem in the face and say, there's one coming that's greater than I. Despite the fact that he planted his church in the most remote area that you could possibly be, out in the wilderness, as a voice, that Greek word voice, the phone, it's where we get our word phone, it just means a voice that was ringing, and people need to pick up on that voice. He alerted people, I need you to wear camel hair. And if you're not wearing camel hair, go out and buy camel hair suit or whatever you need to do, all right? In here is where you wear the camel hair, all right? All right, here we go. Arrhenius, second century, 
Now, he was a man who wrote books against Gnosticism, you know, that pernicious doctrines that came about in the second and third centuries. In fact, they were so bad, they were reading or they were writing new gospels to replace Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Gnostics were writing like Gospel of Philip, Gospel of Peter, Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Mary Magdalene, Gospel of Judas. They were trying to dilute and make their own biography of Jesus. In their image, Irenaeus stood, he wore camel hair, and he, with his writings, basically saved the church against this horrible scourge that was coming about. And we know nothing's going to prevail against the church ultimately, according to Christ. But Irenaeus stood in the gap and did his job. He said about the scriptures, most properly assured that the scriptures are indeed perfect, since they were spoken by the word of God and his spirit throughout the church. We have believed in full inerrancy of Scripture until today. Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo, very influential theological mind, he said, I have learned to hold the Scriptures alone, inerrant. Now, if this book is alone, it's the Latin phrase, what? Sui generis. All right, come on, you guys, you're getting a little (laughs) slipping. Augustine's dictum, what does he say? Now, this is a great little dictum here. He says, if we are perplexed by any apparent contradiction in Scripture, it is not allowable to say the author of this book is mistaken. But one, the manuscript is faulty, or two, the translation is wrong, or three, you have not understood. I like this dictum. The problem isn't with God speaking. God doesn't stutter. Okay, God says what he means and he means what it says and it's written right here. The problem is there in our fallible understanding and that fallible understanding has come to bear where these new evangelical scholars are saying that this book here is actually part of a genre that is called Greco-Roman genre and Greco-Roman genre in the tradition of Virgil and Plutarch and other Greco-Roman writers These guys had license to embellish, to invent speeches that never took place, to rearrange important material in their Greco-Roman works, in their biographies. So also, since this is part of that same genre of the same time period, well, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John has the same license and flexibility to rearrange material and to invent speeches that never took place or to embellish, or include legend if it meets their theological purpose. I want to submit to you today that is dead wrong. Dead wrong. Okay, Just because this may be similar of a book to a different genre who had that license, how do they know God approves of that license for his scripture? How do they know God says, yes, I approve of you putting in something as if it did happen, but really didn't? I don't think so. I don't think so. I'll say more about that a little bit later. Martin Luther, what did he say about the scriptures? The scriptures, although they were also written by men, are not of men nor from men, but from God. His voice is represented in the scriptures. John Calvin, the great reformer, said, we owe to the scripture the same reverence we owe to God because it has proceeded from him alone and has nothing belonging to man mixed with it. Remember, all the other books in the world are man's product. This book is God's product who used human agency to write it down and work through them to give us the scripture. It's sui generis, unique, one-of-a-kind book. R.A. Torrey, 
He said, the Bible is the word of God. The voice that speaks to us from this book is the voice of God. J. Gresham Mason, that founder of Westminster Theological Seminary, he says, not partly true and partly false, but all true, the blessed holy word of God. Now, as we finish up this generation, we have to move to the next generation. Now, the person here, his name is Michael Lacona. Um, he is an evangelical scholar. He is a Christian. And I don't hesitate putting his name in his, in his picture here because he's published a book that's public. He's authored public ideas. And also, we went to him, uh, Norm Geisler, uh, we were part of this whole group that went to him, and went and tried to fulfill Matthew 18 with Mike and some of the professors that we're, ha we're having a problem with. And we emailed them privately and tried to work out the differences privately with another Christian that way. Well, he, he, he basically didn't, he didn't want to discuss it. Oh, I'll get to that when I have a chance to get to it. You know, he basically pushed us off for about a year, year and a half. He said, well, we need to bring uh, elders of the church. We need to start talking with people who are Christian leaders who can privately talk with Mike with this. We did that as well. It went nowhere. Mike's sticking by his guns. Then we went to the church, as we're doing now. We went to the church. We're trying to fulfill and do this thing right. And we have founded a website, defendinginerrancy.com, that explains what the problems are, what our responses to the books and the publications that are coming out by a certain group of, of evangelical professors. But this is to get, get you aware of what's going on <clears throat> within the evangelical theological society, where most of evangelical scholars are. Most of your seminary and college Christian professors are probably members of this ETS society. And here's what Michael Lacona says in his book, Resurrection of Jesus. And this is the problem. And this book is 95% right on spot. It is a good book, except for this 5%, you know, devil's in the details kind of a thing. Uh, this is where he breaks down, and really what he's done is given a powerful weapon to the enemies of the cross through this. Unwittingly, maybe, uh, or wittingly, but uh, he is firm not, not to budge here. He says, uh, the Gospels belong to a genre of Greco-Roman biography. He calls that bios, which offered the ancient biographer great flexibility for rearranging material and inventing speeches and often included legend. Okay, we had a problem with that. We tried to work it out in a private way to get him to retract the book or put, publish a public retraction or, or, or edit his book. The next printing just, just wouldn't happen. He lost his job or two over this, this issue. Um, he is now at Houston Baptist Theological Seminary. But it's not just Mike. I'm, I'm not just picking on Mike because he has really written some great stuff. You know, and I pray for him. I pray for the scholars associated with him. But on this issue, he's just simply wrong. And we've gone through the channels, and now it's just time to equip the laity and pastors in the pulpit. Because remember Mation, what he said? As go the seminaries, so go the churches. Okay? We have to do something about it. We have to take the mantle on. The classical scholars are retiring and dying off. There needs to be a new Elisha to come along, pick up that mantle, and continue the fight, okay, in defending the faith. Now, he goes on to say, 
Because this biography or bios literature, this Greco-Roman literature, was a flexible genre, it is often difficult to determine where history ends and legend begins. Just think if you opened your Bible on Sunday morning. Oh, I'm not sure if that's legend or history. They both look alike. Because their theory is is that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John had this license and flexibility as the Greco-Roman writers did, but we, it's difficult to discern because it's all written as if it happened and it's historical. So what are you going to have to do now to go find out? You have to go to the scholar who's read the Greco-Roman literature to find out which passages now are true and which are legend. It's now put the evangelical scholar up here and the Bible under here at this point. They're using this literature as a cookie cutter to determine the truth value of the scripture itself. Well, that's what they said there. This is part of the literature. Therefore, this is what Matthew intended or meant at this point. Notice what Craig Blomberg, of one of Michael Lacona's ardent supporters, um, he wrote a book, Can We Still Trust the Bible? He says, fiction can appear identical to history and form. Other contextual and extra-textual indicators must be consulted as well, including comparisons with non-canonical literature of similar form in order to determine the kinds of narratives we're reading. Occasionally, what has seemed to many throughout the centuries to reflect straightforward history can now be seen to represent a different genre. Hmm. How does he conclude? Page 11 of his book. Yet once again, unfortunately, a handful of ultra-conservatives criticize all such scholarship. That's me. All right? We'll, wait. We'll, we'll lift up two hands. I'll lift up even a leg. I'll go three. Okay, if that's what they mean by that, then I proudly accept the title, ultra-conservative. Thinking they are doing a service to the gospel instead of disservice they actually render. You see, we're harming the church by saying the Bible is fully inerrant. We're hurting you. Because what happens when you stumble across a difficulty? Trying to reconcile or harmonize certain passages that don't seem to make sense. You see, you're hurting them and keeping them in the dark. We know more today. We've done so much more study than the classical guys did. Now we know this is part of Greco-Roman literature. And you don't have to be concerned about those little problems anymore. You, you just It's the way they wrote back then. They can include error. They can include legend. They include all kinds of things, but dress it up like it actually happened. That's the way they wrote. Well, unfortunately, um, to come to those conclusions, you have to assume you know the intentions of the author other than what he wrote on the pages of Scripture. In other words, Matthew intended to understand the passage not to be taken historically, even though he wrote it historically. You see, well, I'm saying, how do you know that? How, how do you know what Matthew intended except by what he wrote? Because you can't discern unexpressed intentions. Matthew is passed on. He's dead. And the only way to get Matthew's unexpressed intentions is to get your crystal ball out or, or do tarot card readings or whatever you got to do to somehow talk to this, this deceased author of a book. Okay? We go by his expressed intentions as he wrote it. So if he wrote it as historical, we assume Matthew intended it to be taken as historical, not any other way. Notice the devastating results of this scholarship. First of all, the Bible now includes legend, and I'll give you an example soon. 
The Bible includes invented speeches that never took place. The Bible is inerrant in its core, but core message, but not in the details. You see, the core message of the cross and of the resurrection and all that core stuff in the Bible is right on, they say. Believe, just like probably you and me believe. It's the little fuzzy details around the edges. Don't get worried about those. Those aren't, you know, those aren't there. Don't, don't, don't worry about that. But if there's one error in Scripture, there could be thousands of errors in Scripture. And if God can ensure through inspiration that he got the core message right, why do we think that he couldn't get the details right? <laughs> Unbelievable. How, why, why would you think that way? I mean, uh, in essence, God could not preserve his word in a sense that the authors could write it straightforwardly as they intended it to be written. Um, that's a big problem. Now, here's some specific examples about where this is going. The neo-evangelicals, that's what we call them. We had to distinguish them from evangelicals. They're neo-evangelicals. They said the angels at the tomb were poetic or even legend. Okay? Some Pauline books are not written by Paul, such as Ephesians, Colossians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 2 Timothy, and Titus. They call this, this great theological term to make it excusable, alanimity. In other words, they borrowed Paul's name to, to put it on. Third, some historical passages are considered fiction, legend, and invented speeches altogether. Fourth, Peter is a false disciple and apostate. Now, this comes from Robert Gundry. Now, he was a former professor at Westmont College, Santa Barbara. Um, he just gave a recent lecture, uh, False Disciple and Apostate of Peter. A Christian publishing house just published a book of his lecture on this. Um, and I'm not saying that everybody in the neo-evangelical camp agrees with Gundry. But these people who are neo-evangelical professors are actually supporting Gundry in terms of just moral support, trying to get him back into the ETS society because he was uh, kicked out uh, decades ago for this same kind of shenanigans here. Um, so uh, Gundry is part and parcel and they are sympathetic to him. The raising of Lazarus in John chapter 11 is a parabolic fiction. Well, it's just some theological purpose there, but don't expect Lazarus to have actually been raised from the dead. John chapter 11. The apostle John probably altered the day Jesus was crucified to make a theological point. So now you have a contradiction between John and Matthew, Mark, and Luke's day. So essentially they're saying there's a contradiction in the scriptures now. Seventh, the data surrounding Jesus' tomb is fragmentary and could possibly be mixed with legend. Well, if that's legendary, shouldn't we ask the question, what about the crucifixion and the resurrection? Maybe that's legendary too? How do we know? Oh, then they'll say, well, you know, some things are only mentioned once in Scripture, and that would be a cause for us to suspect legend or poetic device or something like that. I go, how many times does God have to speak for it to be meaningful and true? Once. Once, there are so many things only mentioned once in Scripture, such as the wedding at the Cana of Galilee in John chapter 2. What do you do with that when you don't find it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Oh, you never know. You know, how about late raising of Lazarus? Oh, parabolic fiction. You know, God just needs to speak once for it to be true. Notice Genesis creation and the Adam and Eve story is mixed with fiction. 
Jonah is a parable, as I said before. He was never swallowed by a large fish. It's more like Frodo and Lord of the Rings and so forth. You know, pastors have license to use Frodo. Now, so does Jesus. Okay. Now, this is a biggie here. Uh, the raised saints in Matthew 27, verses 51 through 53, is legend according to Mike Lacona. And then he has a host of supporters that say that this is perfectly consistent with biblical inerrancy. To say that that never happened in actuality, you remember the story, at the time Jesus was crucified, there was a great earthquake who cracked the tombs of some of the dead open. Then after Jesus rose from the dead three days later, the people that were in these cracked tombs came out and they walked into Jerusalem and showed themselves alive and many people saw them, the Bible says. It's legend, according to this new group, according to Lacona, with support from the others. Legendary. This is right embedded in the middle of the text on the crucifixion of Jesus, the historical crucifixion of Christ. Right in the story, connected by the Greek word chi, 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 chi. That means and, 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 and. That shows a linkage of the same idea of historical nature of the crucifixion as there is to this resurrection of this body of believers. So we must say, did the crucifixion really happen if that didn't happen? It's in the same story. How do you know where to separate? Oh, well, the crucifixion is mentioned all four times in the Gospels. Multiple attestation, they say. It's not just mentioned once, so we can believe the crucifixion. Well, you can also say a lie a hundred times, too. I mean, you, you, you don't have to just say it once and it has to be a lie, and vice versa. Truth is not determined by numbers. But they say, we're inerrantists. We're inerrantists. We're with you. We believe in the inerrancy of the Bible, but you got to ask, what do you mean by that? Okay, it's no longer good enough, guys, to go to a website of either a church, a Bible college, a seminary, and read their doctrinal statement, and it say, we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. That's just the start. Who's teaching the class? What are their views on this issue? Where do they stand? You just can't take it for granted anymore. The world has changed. Now, what are some of the responses to our critiques of these neo-evangelical scholars? Well, they said we're bullies because we disagree with the theological position they hold. We're hyper-conservative. We're ultra-conservative. We're extremists. We're very unscholarly, even though we all have PhDs and can know how to write an article if we need to. We're far right, Amen. overly conservative. Amen. We hinder genuine scholarship. I'm taking this from their literature. Okay, We've never written crazy stuff like this about them, but hindering genuine scholarship. Well, we are hindering bad scholarship, yeah, uh, but not uh, genuinely good scholarship. They also said we're like Nazis, <laughs> trying to enforce our will, you know. Small in number, like a little rabble, you know. There's tens of thousands and millions of people who believe in the full inerrancy of Scripture. You can go to defendinginerrancy.com and see the petition, how it's growing and growing and growing, and with all kinds of Christian leaders there with their, their pictures and their statements on the full inerrancy of Scripture. We reject new developments. We do a disservice to the gospel, as Blomberg said. Avoid them like the plague, they said. 
were unprofessional, anachronistic. We're like throwbacks. You still believe in the full inerrancy of the Bible? Yeah, we do. Yeah, it served us, the church, well for 2,000 years. We're not about to change because you said so. You know, the Bible is true. They even made YouTube cartoons of Dr. Geisler. I mean, I must admit, they were pretty funny. But it was in bad taste. Satirical, mocking cartoons. Even Dr. Geisler got a laugh out of it. It was pretty good. He goes, I don't even wear those kind of sweaters. I wear the sweaters that, whatever. (laughs) Camel hair, that's right. So what are the living framers saying about, and I'm going to wrap it up uh, just in the next few slides here. The living framers of ICBI, that's the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy, they defined what we mean by the full inerrancy of Scripture. This was a group of hundreds of evangelical scholars coming together in the 80s to sign documents, to pen and draft statements to explain what we mean about inerrancy. R.C. Sproul was one of the editors and president. He says this about Lacona's view. He says, as the former and only president of ICBI during its tenure and its and as its original framer of the affirmations and denials of the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy, I can categorically say that Mr. Lacona's views are not even remotely compatible with the unified statement of the Council on Biblical Inerrancy. You can use this comment by me however you wish. We wrote him and talked to him about this issue, and he says, yeah, he's, uh, he, I'm just not saying he, but the group that espouses this kind of scholarship is so far from what we mean by inerrancy. J.I. Packer, he was also on the board of the ICBI when it was meeting. He says, I offer you the following, which you may use any way you wish. As a framer of the ICBI statement on biblical inerrancy, who once studied Greco-Roman literature at an advanced level, I judge Mike Lacona's view that because the Gospels are semi-biographical, details of their narratives may be regarded as legendary and factually erroneous to be both academically and theologically unsound. This comes from a person who studied the literature. And also, Norm Geisler, there's only three living framers of that Chicago Statement uh, documents. The third one is Norm Geisler. He says, as a framer of the ICBI statements and as general editor of the ICBI books, I concur with my colleagues, that's Sproul and Packer, that Lacona's views, like those of Gundry, are contrary to inerrancy and held by the framers of ICBI statements, and as expressed in the following articles. So, The living framers even see the difference between limited and unlimited. Now, we're not going to go through this whole chart, but just know, in essence, this chart is just saying that unlimited full inerrantists believe that the Bible is wholly true without error in everything, whereas the limited inerrantists say it's true and inerrant in its core, but there's little details around the peripheral that are not. Okay. There's a flawed method, and this is it. Genre criticism. They place the Bible in the same genre as Greco-Roman biographical literature. In other words, the extra-biblical literature determines the meaning and truth value of the biblical text now. That's what we have objection to. Now another piece of literature determines the scriptural meaning. Meaning is discovered in the author's intentions. We know the author's expressed intentions, but the unexpressed intentions, uh, we just have to leave them there. We shouldn't speculate on that, especially if they contradict his expressed intentions. Then the other flaw is they misdefine what an error means. Error has always traditionally meant a misrepresentation of the facts. They just got it wrong. If you do it on purpose, it's a lie. 
If you don't do it on purpose, it's simply an error. But the new crew, the neo-evangelicals are saying that an error is only an unintentional mistake. You see, Matthew may have intended to put in things that did not happen. And we can't consider that an error if Matthew intended to do that. All right? But nevertheless, an error is a misrepresentation of the facts. You don't know what Matthew's intention is except by what he wrote. And he wrote it historically and truthfully. We have to take him to the bank on that. So they redefine error. Meaning is discovered in the deceased author's unexpressed intentions. And genre criticism illegitimately puts this book that's inspired alongside non-inspired books to be in the same class and category. Sui, what? Generous, one of a kind, not Greco-Roman biographical literature under Plutarch and Virgil and this book, okay? This stands in a class by itself. Harold Lenzel, he said, this term, limited inerrancy, is meaningless. It is nonsense. The sooner we realize this, the sooner we will see the issue of inerrancy in its proper perspective. He said, once limited inerrancy is accepted, it places the Bible in the same category with every other book that has ever been written. Well said, Harold. Carl Henry, evangelicals do not dispute the fact that for a time at least Christianity may function with an impaired doctrine of Scripture, but it does so at its own peril and inevitably must then lose much of its essential message. Carl bravely fought the battle of the 21st century or the 20th century battle for the Bible. And there's Mation. As go the theological seminary, so goes the church. Well said. I want to leave you with three things. These next two slides. Three things. Three reasons why the Bible cannot err. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All right? It's an attack. It's an attack on the authenticity of the Father who gave it. It's an attack on the authority of the Son who confirmed it. It's an attack on the ministry of the Holy Spirit who inspired it, who cannot err. It's an attack on the nature of God and the three members of the Godhead. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Revelation 2.10. I want to invite you as we, as we close, be faithful to the word of God, to God, his son, Jesus Christ, to his word that spells out the redemptive plan for man. Twitter, Facebook, the blogosphere, who are starting to promote all these crazy doctrines about the doctrine of scripture. It, 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 there's pressure there, I know. There's pressure there, peer pressure, to be going into this more youthful way of, of communicating and, and social interaction and so forth. The new scholars are using it brilliantly, brilliantly. I would submit to you camel hair, camel hair. Wear camel hair. Don't worry about the social media. Wear camel hair. I'm looking for people who want to wear camel hair. People who will not compromise to these great and powerful religious voices, who will not bow the knee to Baal, who will say this word is the word of God. As Martin Luther said, feelings come and go, but my warrant is the word of God. That's where the Reformation stood on, sola scriptura. Okay, Will you stand with me? Stand with me, and as you stand, think about your recommitment your recommitment to the word of God, 
to the truth of these pages. Stand with me and wear camel hair like John the Baptist did. Don't worry about the locusts. Don't have to eat that stuff. Even though I hear there's some flour that's made with uh, crickets and stuff now. I think it's called chapul. Yeah. Uh, we, won't, we won't go that far, but if you wear camel hair, it'll remind you. Stay uncomfortable about some of these ideas that are floating around. Okay? okay let's, let's bow in prayer. Lord, we do thank you and praise you. We thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for the church here, Calvary Chapel, The Rock. Thank you for Pastor Ross and his staff and pastors here that are serving diligently and faithfully. They will receive that crown. Lord, we pray that you would help us have the courage, the conviction, without compromise, to stand upon your world in a world that's throwing all kinds of different voices and ideas at us, whether it's the pressure of social media or the young, hip, evangelical scholar, whatever it might be. Lord, I pray you give us the bravery, the courage, and the fortitude to oppose those doctrines that contradict sound works. Titus 1, 9 through 11. Lord, we thank you. Give us your mercy and grace and give us humility as we speak out on these things, knowing that we have all been wrong in one way or another and our theology is not 100% perfect in every way, but perhaps we know the things we can stand on and that is your word, Lord. You hold it higher than your name. That's something to be said. So Lord, let us hold it higher than our name too. Father, we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. Praise the Lord. Hey, God bless you. God bless you, brother. This started a lot sooner than most of you think. In Genesis chapter 3, the devil says, did God really say? Did God really say? That's what got us into this predicament in the first place, you know? And now he continues always throughout every age. What's encouraging to me in kind of a bittersweet way is, is that the Bible prophesied this very thing would happen before the Antichrist was revealed, before the church is raptured, there'd be a great falling away that men and women would not put up with sound doctrine, but accumulate to themselves a great multitude of teachers that would teach them what their itching ears want to hear. And so we are seeing that happen in our seminaries, in our pulpits, on the blogosphere. And it just breaks our hearts to see, as I have seen over the years, friends and families divided. People from our very fellowship have fallen away from the essential doctrines to the cut and paste mentality. And the big issue is, you know, it opens the door for you to be able to say about uh, theology and principles that are make us uncomfortable, like sexuality, or Jesus being the only way uh, to heaven, or the doctrine of hell. These are areas that now you're able to say, you know, we're more forgiving than Jesus Christ and smarter than the Apostle Paul. So to make ourselves more 
you know, attractive in the world and more comfortable in the workplace and so that they don't look at us and say, you still wear camel hair? Come on, you weirdo. You know, join in. We have to be careful. Paul, through the Holy Spirit, said, Timothy, guard sound doctrine. For by doing so, you will save both yourself and those who are listening to you. So we've been warned in the scriptures that this day was coming. And I just say, as your pastor, listen, you will be vulnerable to this if you have a chip on your shoulder, if you've been hurt in the church, if you've isolated yourself or hardened your heart in any way, this neo-gospel, this new ultra-forgiving and anything goes, kind of laid-back gospel, it will be very appealing to you. So deal with heart issues. Don't harden your heart. If you've been hurt, ask God to heal your heart. If you find yourself being cynical and, and, and such, watch out because that deception will come in and take you and do a lot of damage. And so let's guard our hearts and continue to love the Lord and stand on his immovable, wonderful word of truth. Amen. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org.